In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this is the last Sunday of the present church year. When we meet together next week, a new year will have begun, and we will begin again four weeks of solemn preparation for the advent of Jesus, God's Son, into the world. He'll come, of course, as he always does, heralded by angels and celestial portents, yet also in great humility as a helpless baby born in a stable. We'll have plenty of time to reflect on all that in due course. Today, though, is the Feast of Christ the King, and we're supposed to be celebrating Christ's kingship, his triumphs, and his reign over all creation. It should have come as no surprise then to hear Anne just now reading us the Christ hymn from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, which sings, among other things, about how all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, were created in and through and for Jesus, how in him all things hold together, how he has first place in everything, primacy over all thrones, dominions, rulers, and powers, because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This sounds like kingly stuff indeed. At least it does for me right up until the last verse, which reminds us how God was pleased to reconcile all things in heaven and earth to himself through Christ. That is, by making peace through the blood of his cross, that bloody cross hangs there behind whoever is preaching on any given Sunday of the church year, just as on any Sunday the preacher has hanging to their right that thorny crown. So even in the Christ hymn, we are reminded that Jesus's kingship was of a sort to subvert expectations. And indeed, our gospel reading today gives us St. Luke's account of the crucifixion, where again, Christ's kingship is mocked by soldiers and criminals alike, who suppose, reasonably, that if Jesus really were the Messiah and King of the Jews, he could save himself from a horrifying and ignominious death. We cannot then separate our understanding of Christ as king from that of Christ as crucified and the work he accomplished on the cross. Nor, I would suggest, can we separate either of these from our understanding of Christ as God incarnate. And so I'd say Christ the King Sunday really does belong here on the last Sunday of the church year, pointing the way forward into Advent. What sort of king was Christ? As I mentioned a moment ago, I think it was perfectly reasonable in a way for the soldiers and dying thieves to have had doubts about whether Jesus was truly the Messiah. Bonnie read to us today one of the prophet Jeremiah's woe passages which occurs in the middle of a lengthy series of prophecies against Israel's kings. 
These are kicked off by Judah's king, Zedekiah, who is under siege by Nebuchadnezzar and the fearsome army of Babylon, asking Jeremiah to intercede with God on his behalf that the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful acts so that the enemy will withdraw from us. Jeremiah, let's say, declines. Instead, he says, here's God's message to Zedekiah. I myself will war against you with a mighty arm, even in wrath and in great indignation. And Jeremiah goes on in this vein for some time, inveighing against Zedekiah and all the other wicked kings who have ruled while he's been a prophet. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiachin, all of whom our passage today declares, have been like shepherds who drive away, destroy, and scatter the sheep of my pasture, the exact opposite of what a good shepherd like David had done. And God promises to set a new shepherd over a remnant of his flock gathered from all the countries where they've been driven, a righteous branch raised up for David who shall reign as king with wisdom, justice, and righteousness, and Israel will dwell securely. The reference here to David, Israel's former shepherd king, in whose reign Israel had dwelt in relative security against enemies like the Philistines, would conjure up reasonable expectations of another king like unto him for those of Jesus's contemporaries who took seriously messianic prophecies like Jeremiah's. After being scattered and oppressed successively, uh, successively by the Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and now the Romans, a Messiah and king of the Jews would throw off the Roman yoke. In his days, Judah would be saved, Jeremiah says. Well, when Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews, Jesus didn't deny it. But pretty obviously in the eyes of the leaders and the soldiers looking on, this Messiah on the cross isn't in a position to save Judah or anyone else. He can't even save himself. Oh, how wrong they were, we say. Our hindsight in the glorious light of the resurrection being 2020. Far from being defeated on the cross, it represented the beginning of his glorious triumph over death, culminated in his rising again. And we are partakers in this triumph, we say, insofar as we are all part of his flock, rescued from the power of darkness and transferred into his kingdom. So we say, and we're right to say so, I believe, but the oddness of Christ's triumph should prompt us to ask just what exactly Christ accomplished on the cross and why or whether he had to be crowned king in that peculiar way. This is, of course, to ask about the doctrine of the atonement, which is something of a theological battleground on which rival theories of atonement vie for supremacy. I have no wish to back any particular theory of atonement 
against any others right now. But I will point to a couple of answers our reading from Colossians appears to me to suggest. First, then, there is the idea that atonement consists in Christ's victory over sin, death, the devil, and his minions. This notion is suggested both by verse 13, he has rescued us from the power of darkness, and verse 16, declaring his primacy over thrones, dominions, rulers, and powers. Commentators aren't clear on whether the powers and whatnot mentioned here are spiritual forces like the devil or earthly ones like the Romans, quite possibly both. At any rate, the idea is that these powers held us in bondage and Christ defeated them. The Swedish Lutheran theologian Gustav Aulain calls this the Christus Victor model of atonement. And he finds it widespread in the writings of early Christians like St. Irenaeus, who writes, Since God is both invincible and magnanimous, through the second man he bound the strong one and spoiled his goods and annihilated death, bringing life to man who had become subject to death. For Adam had become the devil's possession, and the devil held him under his power by having wrongfully practiced deceit upon him and by the offer of immortality made him subject to death. But he who had taken man captive was himself taken captive by God, and man who had been taken captive was set free from the bondage of condemnation. That's Irenaeus one of the church's first theologians, student of St. Polycarp the Martyr, who in turn had been taught directly by St. John the Evangelist. Now, if you're like me, and you don't very often spend time immersed in Irenaeus's writings, yet you find his ideas sounding kinda sorta familiar, it may be because you have spent time immersed in C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, and you're remembering Aslan's victory over the White Witch. Edmund, in the story, is lured by the witch to betray his brother and sisters, just as Irenaeus says the devil practiced deceit upon Adam. Edmund and Adam are consequently made subject to death by the deep magic from the dawn of time, the witch says, every traitor belongs to me as lawful prey. And Aslan doesn't argue with this, but submits to a horrifying and ignominious death in Edmund's place. Yet what the devil and the witch and the other powers of sin didn't know was that by a deeper magic, hidden in the stillness and darkness before time dawned, when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, death itself would start working backwards. That's what Aslan says to Lucy and Susan after coming back to life, and I find it beautiful and stirring. Nevertheless, 
if Lewis had given Lucy and Susan a more theologically inquisitive bent, he might have had them ask Aslan why it was that the deeper magic required a victim at all. Why should God or Aslan's father, the emperor over the sea, owe anything to the devil? Why should Christ's victory over death require the cross? Of the many things one might say here, one is clearly suggested by the end of the Christ hymn from Colossians. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through the blood of the cross. Gustav Aulain refers to this verse in describing the classical idea of the atonement he finds in Irenaeus and others. Christ, he says, Christus Victor, fights against and triumphs over the evil powers of the world, the tyrants under whom mankind is in bondage and suffering, and in him God reconciles the world to himself. The reconciliation bit is crucial, just as crucial as the fighting and the triumphing. Christ couldn't have won his victory had not the fullness of God been pleased to dwell in him. Only someone with God's own power could defeat death and the devil. Yet he couldn't have reconciled all things by making peace through the blood of the cross, clearly, without becoming incarnate, prone to temptation and death in every way as we are, and actually dying on our behalf. Consider, if you will, the other cross prominently displayed in our sanctuary. That is a picture of all things being reconciled to God by Christ making peace through the blood of the cross. Jeremiah says, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And our hope of salvation consists in being grafted onto this branch, just as we see the branches stemming from the cross with all of creation in their embrace. Yet a graft can only take when the thing being grafted is sufficiently similar to what it is grafted onto. And though we are created in God's image, sin marred this image in us such that we are no longer capable of partaking in God's divine life. As Irenaeus has it, the first Adam was created both in God's image and in God's likeness, but through sin, while retaining the divine image, he lost his likeness to God. Becoming strangers to God, we became also strangers to ourselves, inwardly at war with ourselves. How then can God restore peace within us and reconcile us to him? By the incarnation and the cross. Irenaeus says, he became what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is in himself. 
And C.S. Lewis explains this idea with his own characteristic homely eloquence. When you teach a child writing, you hold its hand while it forms its letters. That is, it forms the letters because you are forming them. We love and reason because God loves and reasons and holds our hands while we do it. Now, if we had not fallen, that would all be plain sailing. But unfortunately, we now need God's help to do something which God, in his own nature, never does at all, to surrender, to suffer, to submit, to die. Nothing in God's nature corresponds to this process at all. So that the one road for which we now need God's leadership most of all is a road God in his own nature, has never walked. God can share only what he has. This thing in his own nature, he has not. But supposing God became a man, suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated with God's nature in one person, then that person could help us. He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was man. And he could do it perfectly because he was God. That's the idea I think the last verse of our Colossians passage is driving at, elegantly put. But lest you be left wondering why God couldn't in his power reconcile us to himself without the mess of incarnation and cross, let me indulge in one last illustration. A portrait of a man truly at war with and estranged from himself, Raskolnikov in Dostoevsky's novel Crime and Punishment. The crime in the novel's title is Raskolnikov's murder of a rich and greedy old pawnbroker. He commits it in part to rage against the system of power and oppression in which he finds himself mired. Yet even as he struggles against the system, he finds himself even worse admired by his own psychology, his guilt, and his knowledge that left on his own, he has little to live for. The funny thing is, he isn't left on his own. Not by the system, certainly. He's pursued doggedly throughout the book by a police investigator. But not by his friends and family either. His mother and sister move to Petersburg in order to help him. His good-hearted friend Razumakin nurses him to health, clothes him, tries to find him work, and steadfastly defends his innocence. Yet Raskolnikov finds their presence an intolerable torment. My mother, my sister, how I loved them, he reflects. Why do I hate them now? Yes, I hate them. Hate them physically. I cannot bear having them near me. These characters are, in a way, too put together to be able to reach Raskolnikov in the depths to which he's fallen. The one character whose society he can tolerate is someone who has also sunk very low 
at least in society's eyes, Sonia, a prostitute. He's a beast even to her. He lashes out at her and she keeps silent. He confesses his crime to her and she says, I'll follow you. I'll go wherever you go. I'll go to hard labor with you. Meaning she expects him to confess his crime publicly and receive his punishment, exile to a Siberian labor camp. Well, eventually he does. And true to her word, Sonia descends with him even there. Although even there, he isn't reconciled to himself or to her right away. It's like two pages from the end of the book when finally, Dostoevsky writes, in their pale, sick faces shone the dawn of a renewed future, a complete resurrection into a new life. And here begins a new account of a man's gradual renewal, regeneration, and acquaintance with a new, hitherto completely unknown reality. All this might make the subject of a new story, Dostoevsky says, but our present story is ended. And if I could echo him here at the end, having said this much about why Christ's kingship encompasses the incarnation and the cross, it might make the subject of a new sermon what it looks like to live our lives as ruled by a king of that sort. But the present sermon is ended. Amen. <laughs>